people are the most consequential and dangerous forces on earth. Well, personality psychology is about the nature of human nature. It's about people. And wouldn't that be useful to know? I mean, it seems to me, I can't, I can't think of a more important problem. You're listening to the Science of Personality podcast, brought to you by Hogan Assessments, the global leader in personality assessment and leadership development since 1987. Your hosts are Hogan Chief Science Officer and world-renowned personality psychologist, Dr. Ryan Sherman, along with Hogan PR Manager and resident storyteller, Blake Lepp. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Sherman, along with my co-host, as always, Blake Lepp. Say hello, Blake. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Science of Personality podcast, episode 51. Today, Ryan and I are joined by Dr. Catherine Nelson Coffey, Associate Professor of Psychology at Suwannee, the University of the South, to discuss the science of health and happiness, which is something almost all of us strive for. However, even though we might think we know how to be healthy and happy, it's not always as easily attainable as we desire. This is at the core of Dr. Nelson Coffey's research, and we're thrilled to have her on to talk about this topic that affects all of us. So with that, Katie, and can I call you Katie? Yes, please do. Okay. Is there anything else you would like the audience to know about you before we dive into the episode? I don't think so. Thank you for the introduction. Well, I want to provide a little bit of uh, background about Katie for, for our audience. So uh, Katie and I have known each other since graduate school. We were graduate school mates at the University of California, Riverside. And since then, uh, Katie has had a very productive career in uh, positive psychology uh, and, and mostly around the study uh, of happiness, and as, you, as you'll find out today, also around health and happiness and uh, how uh, how that's related to a number of our, of our life circumstances. Uh, she's, uh, like I said, had a very productive academic career at, uh, at, at Sewanee. Um, she, but, but uh, you know, in terms of publications, she's uh, got, uh, let's see how many total it is here. It looks like over 30, maybe getting close to over 40 publications and book chapters and top journals in, in, in psychology. Um, she has, in 2021, was identified by the Association for Psychological Science as a rising star. She's won a number of other awards, including the Best Early Career uh, Presentation at, at a Positive Psychology Conference. Uh, she's won a dissertation, honorable mention awards, travel grants, all kinds of awards uh, for, for her work. Um Katie is also, like I said, really uh, well published in in popular press outlets, um, talking about her, her work on, on happiness and, and including some work on happiness uh, during uh, during COVID. Um, and uh, she has an H index for those of you who are sort of academically oriented of uh, 24, according to Google Scholar, which basically means she's had at least 24 papers that have been cited at least 24 times, which is a really impressive, especially given the career stage at which she's at. Uh, her citation count uh, seems to be growing at a, a, a almost exponential pace every year. Um, her most cited paper has more than 501, well, it has more than 500 citations. Um, and, and it's about the, the, one of the topics we'll be talking about today about parenthood and, and happiness. Uh, so Katie, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, the other thing is, I think you have a bit of news regarding your, uh, your, your current university. My understanding is that you are moving to Arizona State very shortly. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. In the fall, I'll be starting as an associate professor of psychology in the School of Social and Behavioral Sciences there. So we're really excited about opportunities there. That is awesome. And are they bringing you in there? I didn't ask this before, but are they bringing you in there with tenure or are they making you wait a year? Um, so, yes, bringing in with tenure. Um, that's pending, fantastic. Yeah, pending some final review. <laughs> Great. So for our audience, that basically means uh, Katie is a star and uh, is, is, is continuing. Her, her star is really just uh, starting to burn brighter and brighter. So uh, look, Katie, thanks so much for coming on here. Uh, we've wanted to do an episode on, on this topic for a while. So um, super excited you could join us today. Thanks for having me. Well, Katie, so one of the first things that we like to do whenever we have someone on the podcast to discuss a particular topic it's how they became interested in that topic in the first place. So what got you interested in exploring health and happiness? 
Yeah, so this goes back to my time as an undergraduate student. And um, it's a pretty nerdy response, very academically focused. But as an undergraduate student taking psychology courses, I was really noticing that those classes were focused pretty heavily on what was wrong with people. Um, Things from mental illness and biases and so on and so forth. And honestly, it started to give me a somewhat negative perspective about people and human behavior. But that was also different from what I was experiencing in my own relationships and observations of uh, people in my life. And so I felt like there was this disconnect between what I was learning about human behavior in my courses um, versus what I was just you know, observing in my day to day life. At the time, positive psychology was also just starting to get its legs as a new subdiscipline within the field. And um, I had a professor who was you know, starting to learn more and um, develop in this area of positive psychology. So she invited me to do an independent study focused on positive emotions and um, other aspects of positive psych. And um, I also took a course on positive psych at the time. And so I started to learn more about this science of positive psychology. Um, And this is when things really started to click for me. Um, I started to learn some key research findings like most people want to be happy. Most people are happy. Um, Happiness is associated with lots of other benefits for people's close relationships, contributions to their communities, physical health, uh, you know, all sorts of other topics, and that it's possible to increase happiness levels. And so, um, like I said, this is when things started to kind of click for me. I felt like really um, enthusiastic and invigorated um, by these research findings. They really piqued my interest. And I I also saw this as a topic that could apply to the population more broadly, right? Of course, um, everybody wants to be happy. um, And here we have this science that can help us learn more about happiness. I also really fell in love with research around the same time. And so that, along with my interest in understanding happiness, has really worked out as a great combination, um, which has really fueled my career. Well, thanks for sharing that background, Katie. Like, uh, you know, I, I totally resonate with your point about, uh, you know, the uh, psychology, you know, the sort of intro to psychology is sort of about like all what's wrong with us, right? So you learn about, you know, um, you know mental disorders and you learn about personality disorders and you you learn about, uh, like you mentioned, biases and basically about how humans get it all wrong and about how we're really bad. And it's just really kind of fascinating that uh, so much of, of what we think about or what we teach or we learn in psychology is like sort of what's wrong with us or what are we doing wrong or what could we be doing better um, versus like looking around and saying, you know what, actually we do some things pretty well and this is how people function really well. And this is what uh, people who are sort of thriving are doing, uh, which is a, a very different look on it. So, so I think, yeah, that's a really, uh, a really cool background, but I, but I think that really resonates with a lot of people in psychology. Yeah, and I think it's really helpful to like recognize that, yes, it's important to understand these um, errors and biases and mental disorders, but it's only part of the picture. And so I kind of view it as, you know, positive psychology and understanding happiness can add to that and not necessarily try to replace it or say that, you know, we shouldn't be studying those things, but it's just kind of a complementary. You know, one way we think about this at Hogan, sort of, that I think is in a sort of similar vein, is uh, you know we talk about people's bright side, which is typically we measure with with our big five kind of measure, the HPI, mm-hmm. sort of the bright side, sort of this is you when you're putting your best foot forward, this is you sort of at your best self, uh, and then we also have a measure that sort of assesses the dark side, so this is you when you're you know you're, you're not self presenting, this is you when you're sort of let your guard down. Um, which I think in some respects kind of uh, is it parallels this, this notion of sort of positive psychology versus the rest of psychology, right? There's this sort of bright side. There's these things that we do really well that are, that help us function and help us thrive. And then there's these things that sometimes get in our way and, and keep us from, from performing our best. Yeah, I like that. Like, again, going back to this idea of a complementary approach and a lot of positive psychology focuses on, you know, thinking about happiness and well-being as um, like a positive aspect of mental health, um, but also recognizing that um, 
like when we talk about mental health and mental disorders and things like that, um, being happy or being well is not just the absence of those things, right? So, um, you know, for a long time, I think we thought of, um, you know, alleviating depression, right? And so once you can resolve someone's depressive symptoms, then like the clinical psychologist might be done. But we can all recognize probably like it, that not being depressed is not exactly the same thing as being happy, right? And so I like this approach of, you know, thinking about the bright side and the dark side together, because it does give us this more holistic perspective, whether it's in terms of personality, like you all do at Hogan, or thinking more broadly about health and mental health, and we can kind of have this, um, like I said, holistic perspective. Yeah, I love that point about uh, about you know the absence, right? The absence of of depression or the absence of bad things doesn't mean doesn't mean uh, you know happiness doesn't mean well being. That's that's really cool. I love it. Thank you. Yeah, and I'd never really thought of it that way either. I mean, you kind of just assume if you're not if you're not depressed, that must mean you're happy. But now that you put it that way, I mean, I can I can see how that might not be the case. I just never never looked at it through that lens before. <laughs> Right. And this is a big point um, in the field of positive psychology. And when we think about what does it mean to be happy, um, we really try to um, contrast that with mental health and um, emphasize that the absence of depression or anxiety or, you know, any other um, mental disorder is not the same thing as the presence of like a positive mental health or positive well-being. Um, and similarly, the absence of happiness does not mean that someone is experiencing suffering, a mental disorder. And so we have to look at these two, I think, separately and together to really have a more comprehensive picture. Well, okay. So Katie, for my next question, you know, if health and happiness is one of the primary things that, that people want in life or something that they're striving for, what are some of the main reasons why it can be so difficult to achieve and maintain it? Yeah, this is a good question. So um, although research shows that it is possible for, incre- for people to increase their happiness levels, it turns out that sometimes we're not so good at it. Um, and there are lots of psychological processes that are at play here. Um, but there are a couple of big ones um, that I wanted to talk about that can really get in our way as we try to improve in our happiness levels. So the first is that people are not very good at knowing what will make them happy. We tend to tell ourselves all kinds of stories about what we think is going to make us happy. Um, things like, I'll be happy when I'm in a relationship or I'll be happy when I get engaged or when I get married, or I'll be happy when I graduate or get a job, get a promotion, get the next promotion, buy a house, right? We have all these stories that we tell ourselves of things that we think are going to make us happy. And that um, shapes our focus and our goals and the things that we do or pursue in our day-to-day lives. Um, so we tend to then focus on these specific events or these specific outcomes, and that takes our attention away from the things that are currently going on in our lives. Research on affective forecasting um, focuses on the predictions that people make about how various experiences um, will influence their emotions. And this shows that we tend to overestimate the extent to which positive experiences will bring positive emotions and also overestimate the extent to which negative experiences will bring negative emotions. So, for example, one study surveyed people in relationships um, and asked them how they would feel if their partner broke up with them. And then they also followed these people over time to see how they actually felt following a breakup. And in this study, on average, people predicted that they would feel a lot more distressed and upset following a breakup than they actually felt when when they broke up with their partners. And so we have these affective forecasting errors where we don't really have a good understanding of how we're going to feel in response to certain experiences or events. And that shapes all these different expectations that we have, what we're going to pursue. And so this is kind of the first thing. So uh, we're not that great at knowing or predicting what will make us happy. Um, So this can lead us to chasing goals that could be counterproductive to happiness, like focusing on um, making a ton of money or um, getting a different job, you know, things like that. 
Another big reason why it can be difficult to achieve and maintain happiness is that we tend to adapt to positive and negative events in our lives. Um, this is a process that's known as hedonic adaptation. So we might experience a big happiness boost around the time of an event, but it's difficult to maintain that over time. So, for example, studies show that happiness increases when people get married, um, but that people return to their pre-marriage baseline happiness levels by about their second anniversary. Um, and so we do this in response to both positive and negative events. And this is a good thing when it comes to negative experiences, right? We don't want to be um, suffering endlessly when something bad happens. But when it comes to positive experiences, it can make it really challenging for sustainable um, changes in our happiness levels if we're kind of always kind of returning to um, this baseline level. And so those, I think, are two of the big reasons why um, it can be difficult to achieve and maintain happiness. Yeah. So uh, it, the affective forecasting part is really interesting to me, Katie. So it, let me let me make sure I understand this correctly. So uh, I, I think we tend to overestimate the impact of both positive and negative events, right? So we think that negative events will make us a lot sadder than they will, but also we think that positive events will make us a lot happier than they will. Is that is that right, or am I getting that wrong? Yeah, I think that's right. A lot of the work on affective forecasting has focused a bit more on the negative events, but the same principle applies to positive events. We're not good at predicting how we're going to feel um, in response to various experiences. Right. We think like, oh, if I just got this job or if I just moved to this city or if I just did this one thing, then I would finally be happy. Right. If, or if I just got this big screen TV or whatever it is, right, then I would be happy. Uh, and then that thing happens. And then we find out, uh, you know, maybe, maybe not, maybe, maybe there's still something else I feel like I'm missing. Right. Or if I, you know, um, does that sound right? Yeah, that sounds right. And one of the reasons is that when we ask people to make a prediction about how happy they're going to feel in response to a specific event, we are asking people to focus, you know, specifically on this experience. Um, and when we focus in that way, this is a process known as um, focalism, not surprisingly, um, then we're kind of forgetting about all the other aspects of our life, right? So if we're thinking about a breakup with our partner, um, we are not thinking about, you know, you know, the relationships we have with our friends or what's going on at work or, you know, other aspects of our life that are going to have an important impact on our happiness levels. Um, other research on affective forecasting that I always like to talk about with my students is because it asks students to think about um, how they would feel if they had to live in the worst dorm on campus, right? So every college campus has um, that dreaded dorm that nobody wants to live in. Um, you could probably think about your own undergraduate experiences and what that might be. Um, this is one that tends to resonate with people. Um, so if you ask people um, if, you know, what would how would you feel if you had to live in this terrible dorm? And people are like, oh yes, that would be horrible. I would hate it. Um, and then you follow up with them once they are living in that dorm, um, maybe they are living with all their best friends are also living in that dorm. Um, maybe they have an internship that they're really excited about. Maybe um, they are appreciating the longer walk, you know, whatever it might be. Um, when you ask people about the specific event, they're not thinking about all these other things that could be going on in their life. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that really makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, I, I think, it, you know, in business, there's a lot of applications to this too, right? What if this, um, you know, business partnership ends? Like, I, I think, you know, we tend to think, oh, this is, you know, would be a disaster. But, uh, but there's a lot of other things that, uh, you know, can happen alongside that. Maybe it leads to opportunities for other business partnerships. Maybe it leads to, um, or, or maybe like to your point about foc foc yeah, focalism is that you are, you know, missing out on all the other broader things that are going on that it might be really good in your business at the time, right? You're really just focusing on this one event and seeing it as, um, you know, in this case is, is very negative when uh, there might be a whole host of other things that are going on that are actually really positive. And then sort of the long term or the bigger picture, you know, it's, it's actually really positive for business. I know we're talking about individual level happiness today, but I think the logic of that applies in, in a lot of other scenarios. Yeah, absolutely. Those are great examples. When thinking about, you know, business, we have all sorts of things that are going on in our work life. And when we're making these predictions, we're not thinking about those other things. Right, right. 
You know, this actually hits really close to home for me. Um, I remember my freshman year of college, you know, I was told, hey, go to, go to a fraternity house. You know, you're going to have such a great time. Well, after a semester, I realized that wasn't for me. So I, at the midway point in the semester, a lot of kids have dropped out. Uh, or, I mean, at the midway point of a school year, a lot of kids drop out around the Christmas break time that were freshmen because they're like, oh, maybe college wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. And I had a good... I. I applied for a dorm, so there were more um, rooms available in the dorms that were considered the best ones on campus. And I got into one of those, and there were other spots available. And I told a good friend of mine from high school who was in what would be considered the worst dorm on campus for that first semester. I said, hey, there's an extra spot. We could be roommates. And he, he looked at me like I was crazy. He said, I love living where I am. And it was because he got there, even though it was the worst dorm on campus, he made all of these new friends from, you know, all over the United States that he just, that was his crew at that point. And so, I mean, being in the worst dorm on campus led to, you know, a very high sense of happiness for him that I just couldn't understand at the time. <laughs> but, um, but I don't know, that, that one really hit home for me. And sorry, I tend to go on tangents and tell a story now and then, but um, <laughs> That's a great example, though. Yeah, it really is. I mean, because the way you were describing it, I was reliving my freshman year of college again uh, through the the eyes of one of my friends. And I don't know, that was kind of nice. So thanks for for, uh, bringing back a good memory. Well, okay. So at the core of what we do at Hogan is, is, you know, we focus on personality. And in addition to your research focus on health and happiness, you also have a background in personality psychology. So my next question is, how are they linked? And are there certain aspects of one's personality that makes them more or less likely to be happy? Yeah, I think probably the most notable is extroversion, or if we're talking about the big five. Um, and this is not too surprising because, you know, personality aside, one of the strongest predictors of happiness is having high quality, close relationships. So at face value, we might expect extroversion to be associated with happiness given that relationship focus. Um, in one recent study, um, this was conducted by Seth Margulis, Ashley Stapley, and Sonia Libermirsky. They probed the link between extroversion and well-being a bit further um, to explore how the facets of extroversion, um, they focused on sociability, assertiveness, and energy level um, were linked to well-being. Um, and they were interested in whether you know, all of the facets of extroversion would be associated or you know, maybe you know, only some of them. And what they found was that the link between extroversion and well-being was limited to energy level alone. And so I thought that was kind of interesting. And there's also some experimental evidence linking extroversion to greater happiness. So these studies typically randomly assign participants to either um, act extroverted or to to some control condition and then measure subsequent changes in happiness. So in one study, for example, um, participants were randomly assigned to act extroverted for one week and then to act um, introverted for another week. And they measured happiness and other well-being outcomes um, throughout the week during each of those different weeks. And what they found was that during the extroversion week, participants reported increases in positive affect, life satisfaction, and feelings of connectedness, and decreases in negative affect. Um, But during the introversion week, they reported decreases in positive affect and feelings of connectedness. Um, And so one of the things that I also thought was really interesting from the study was that these results were not moderated by baseline levels of extroversion. So it might be reasonable to expect that extroverts would get more benefit from acting extroverted, um, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Both people who are more and less extroverted tend to benefit in terms of happiness levels by acting more extroverted. Um, And so one of the things that I like too is that this is one of the areas where we do have that experimental evidence showing um, perhaps this causal association between extroversion um, and greater happiness. And so um, when it comes to personality and happiness, I think extroversion is a pretty heavy hitter. 
Yeah, so I think that study that you mentioned, I, first of all, I, I think I know which one you're talking about. It's a really interesting one, and I think that that's what I think people intuitively would think, oh, it, it's about, well, because you get this advice all the time, right? You know, just be yourself. Be yourself, and you'll be happy. If you be, you know, if you can be yourself, then you really be happy, right? And so what was kind of interesting about that is that when people were sort of acting more like themselves, right? If you're sort of more naturally introverted, if you acted more introverted, or if you're naturally more extroverted, you acted more extroverted, that actually didn't make you happier, right? So acting more like yourself didn't make you happier. What seemed to make you happier was actually acting more extroverted. Is that correct? Yeah, that's what they found in the study. Um, and they, you know, everybody did both acting extroverted and acting introverted and it was randomly assigned. And so um, it does kind of run counterintuitive to what we might expect. Yeah, you know, we did some work. And I don't know if we ever published it. Maybe we did publish it. I think... I think we did finally get it published maybe around 2018, but we did some work on authenticity, which is kind of a similar concept, yeah. right? And honestly, and authenticity comes up all the time, actually, in, in the world that, that that Blake and I live in too, right? Mm -hmm. they, there's a lot of talk about things like authentic leadership. And yeah. and the idea is, you know, really, you know, oh, just be yourself, you know, be, you know, be, you know, being yourself is the best. And um, the, what we found was that, that feeling authentic was actually not related to acting in a way that you would like score on a personality assessment, right? So, you know, if you, if we look at your scores on a personality assessment, then we say, okay, now how are you acting in any given moment? Are you acting similar to your typical personality profile or are you acting different from it? What we found was that uh, acting similar to your typical personality profile was not related to feeling authentic at all. It wasn't even related to feeling positive or happy. What was related to feeling positive and happy was uh, uh, basically for our audience was acting more bright side, right? So if you think about more extroverted, uh, um, more emotionally stable, or like in, in Hogan terms, higher on a, you know, acting more adjusted, acting more sociable, uh, acting more interpersonally sensitive, which is agreeableness, right? So acting more in those ways was actually all associated with feeling happier, with feeling more authentic, even if your baseline profile didn't look like that, which I think is a, I think it's just a really interesting set of findings. Yeah, that is really interesting. And as you were talking, I was also thinking about the extent to which this is all probably culturally situated, right? So mm. in the United States, extroversion and conscientiousness, you know, working hard, those are both really highly valued um, personality characteristics. Um, and I'm not quite as familiar on you know this research if it's you know being conducted in um, other countries, but it, I'd be curious to see like is this all just about kind of like what the what is expected in the culture, or is it really about these bright side personality characteristics specifically? Yeah. That's a really good point. Uh, you know, ours was a U.S. sample. I think in this case it was an undergraduate research. So, you know, so it's not the, the kind of samples that I typically work with anymore, the kinds of samples that we would like to work with, but it's a good point. Uh, yeah, yeah. What, what it, it may be, I, I guess, you know, my, my hypothesis is that it's the, so what, <laughs> whenever you act in a way that's more socially desirable, which is culturally, of course, culturally relevant. Um, that's when people are feeling their best. They're fe it, 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 it's just really funny because our measure of authenticity was literally, I feel like my true self. Like that's what we ask people. Like I, I feel like my true self. And you know, when they were diverging from their sort of their, their normal self was actually when they were feeling most authentic, which I think is really, really quite interesting. That is really interesting. Well, I'm curious the role that you've got me thinking about agreeableness or what we consider it Hogan interpersonal sensitivity. And as someone who scores really high on our interpersonal sensitivity scale, um, you know, I, do you think there could be swings there? So someone, let's say, you know, if I'm kind of like warm and caring in my communication style, but then I'm dealing with somebody who's maybe the opposite um, and, and maybe don't have a great interaction with that person, can my high interpersonal sensitivity score or agreeableness um, cause me to be unhappy based on that experience or interaction? Yeah, I mean, I would think like to the extent that that interaction you know, it brings about negative emotions that might make you feel like worried or concerned or uh, you know disappointed or you know hurt your feelings. Um, and you know, negative emotions are an important part of you know 
what we think of as happiness, um, then at least momentarily, I would expect that to have a negative effect on your happiness levels. The other thing I think about when it comes to agreeableness or interpersonal sensitivity is that also tends to have um, components of prosociality. So the extent to which we're doing things for other people and um, being kind to others, engaging in prosocial behavior is also a pretty strong predictor of happiness levels. So I would think, you know, maybe in that moment, you might be, you know, disappointed or experiencing some negative emotions, but across the board, um, I would expect agreeableness to be associated with greater happiness. And I believe this research also suggests that the two are correlated positively. Well, great, Katie, you can send me an invoice in the mail for this session. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, moving on, uh, you know, we talked in a recent episode um, with a a professor out of uh, University of Texas, Austin, Dr. Catherine Page Harden, um, about genetics and personality. Well, you know, genetics have also been considered to play a role in happiness to some extent. So what are your thoughts on this, you know, and how much of a factor is genetics when it comes to being happy? All right. So when it comes to understanding the individual differences in well-being, um, about 36% of those individual differences are accounted for by genetics. Um, And so this tells us that genetics can contribute pretty substantively to understanding those individual differences in happiness levels. So more generally, the way I tend to think about this is that um, you know, genetics does contribute to almost every aspect of our lives. And um, hearing those numbers or hearing, you know, research suggesting that, you know, our happiness, at least in part, is determined by genetics that can maybe make us think like, well, I'm just doomed to be unhappy or um, that must mean I don't have any control over how happy I am. Um, Instead, I think it's helpful to think about genetics perhaps as providing a set point for how happy we are. And then there's room for fluctuation around that set point. So I tend to think of it a lot like weight, right? We all inherit aspects of our physical stature, you know, our frame, our bone structure, our height, our metabolism. Um, But then based on other aspects of our lifestyle, our weight might change around that set point. And the same is true for happiness, right? So we might inherit some aspect of our happiness, like baseline levels, but then based on, you know, what we are actually doing in our day-to-day life, we can change around that set point. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really good uh, a good way to think about it. I mean, the other thing that we know, uh, of course, is that while you know, the genetics sort of uh, play a role in these kind of things, I think a lot of people, and we talked about this in our in our genetics episode, we talked about how people think that it means oh uh, that, that somehow it's fixed that there's not there's nothing that's changeable about it. Uh, they also think oh this is just directly from my parents and that's it. It's A plus B and that's what we mean by genetic and, and that's not quite what it means and, and i would encourage listeners to go back to that episode if you want to hear more about what we mean when we when we talk about the terms heritable versus genetic um and i think the the sort of bigger picture here is that while a, a maybe a little over a third of our uh, general happiness is uh sort of derived from genetics or at least set uh, at some genetic level, there's still a lot of room to a lot of room for environmental factors, a lot of room for uh, in individual choices, individual decisions. Um, and of course, you know, the, some of the things are also out of our control in our environment. Um, you know, you know uh, what what kind of environment we grow up in, uh, what uh, how much, for example, income uh, we might have access to. Um, those kinds of things, uh, of course, play a role as well. But I still think, Katie, if, if I'm understanding this correctly, you're saying that there's still lots of room for for um, sort of individual behaviors and activities that can actually make us feel happier and healthier. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So like, as you pointed out, only about a third of our happiness levels is heritable. And so that leaves more than half that could be determined by either, you know, circumstances or intentional activities or, you know, other aspects of our life. And so, um, you know, perhaps you could think about it as, you know, more of our happiness is under personal control than it is determined by genetics. Well, now I'm curious because Ryan brought up the, uh, he mentioned money as one of the, you know, or income as one of the environmental factors. 
have Katie, have you looked at, you know, there's the old saying, um, money can't buy you happiness. Have you ever gone down that road with your research at all? I haven't personally conducted any research on that question, um, but there's lots of excellent work about money and happiness. Um, a lot of it's conducted by Elizabeth Dunn and her colleagues out of the University of British Columbia. And um, that, the, that research shows generally that um, there is a modest correlation between income and happiness. Um, the last study that I saw suggested that it kind of um, topped off around $70,000 a year um, in terms of salary. So that I believe that was, you know, maybe about 10 years ago. So, um, you know, if you account for inflation, maybe that's gone up a little bit since then. Um, <laughs> but after that, um, the, you know, the additional benefit of increasing income for happiness levels is relatively minimal. And so the idea here is that, you know, it's important to have enough income to uh, provide for your basic needs and give you some you know, autonomy and flexibility in your day-to-day -day life. But, um, you know, becoming a millionaire is not necessarily going to have a huge benefit for your happiness levels. Another area of the research on income and happiness looks at how people spend their money um, and how that's associated with happiness levels. So um, some work also conducted by Elizabeth Dunn. She does these excellent studies where she brings people into her lab and she um, gives everybody, you know, $20, for example, and ran, but then randomly assigns them to how they can spend that money. Half of the participants are told to go spend the money on somebody else and half are told to go spend the money on themselves. And then, you know, afterwards they contact them again, ask them, you know, what did they do with their money? How did they spend it to make sure they follow the directions and also how do they feel at the end of the day? And those studies find that people who spend their money on others rather than themselves um, report higher happiness levels at the end of the day um, than if they spend the money on themselves. Um, and so I think, again, kind of going back to this point I made earlier about, um, you know, what our expectations are or what we think is going to make us happy, right? If somebody gives you $20, you might think, oh, great, like I'm going to go like treat myself or I'm going to, you know, buy a nice lunch or, you know, do something for myself. Um, but the research would suggest that you should actually spend that money on somebody else if you want to increase your happiness levels. Yeah. So uh, I think the big picture there is if you want to be happier, I am accepting donations. <laughs> Feel free to make them out to Brian Sherman. Uh, so look, you know, that's really interesting, Katie. I mean, there was just an article published, I think last week in the New York Times by Seth Stevens. Do you know Seth? Do you know the, do you know who the Seth Stevens Davidovitz? Do you know this? He's no, one of these big data guru guys. Uh, yeah. So he just had this article published in New York Times. He has, a, I think he used to have a, maybe a monthly or weekly column in the, in the New York Times uh, opinion section. So, um, he, he just wrote this one about what was the title of the article? Let me see if I can remember. I think it was something about who the rich, like uh, the rich aren't who we think they are and happiness is not what we think it is either. It's kind of an interesting article. And he was talking about some of these points that you made about, about happiness and how, uh, what, what sort of the limits are in terms of association with money. Uh, one of the things that he sort of concluded with at the end, because he looked at all of these kinds of like, do you know this mappiness project? Yes. Loosely. Okay. So he, yeah, he was talking about that, like what kind of leisure activities are related to happiness and all that kind of stuff, which I think is kind of interesting. I don't know very much about it. So I don't know, maybe you have uh, more insight into it than I do, but uh, his conclusion was this, which I think was kind of a funny one. Uh, he says the data driven answer to life is as follows in terms of right wanting to be happy. Be with your love on an 80 degree and sunny day, overlooking a beautiful body of water, having sex. <laughs> Does that, <laughs> how does that track with what you know about about uh, uh, sort of the, the research that you're familiar with? I mean, I think the, you know, being with your love, um, absolutely. Um, having sex, yes. Also, I think associated at least in the moment with higher happiness uh -huh. levels, and you know, that's also tied closely to you know, think, if you think about relationship quality and you know these other you know big important things for our happiness levels. Um, I'm not as familiar with the body of water part. I have to say. Uh -huh. And um, what about not, sunny days? On a sunny day, yeah. Nice so the sunny weather. day one is interesting um, because. 
I think people in California, for example, don't tend to be any happier. Uh, people who live oh, there um, right, don't tend to right. be any happier than uh, people who live in you know, Minnesota, for example. Um, right. And this goes back to that idea of hedonic adaptation, right? If you live in California, as Ryan and I once did, um, you you get used to it. You you get used to you know the sunny weather or um, the other things, and so I think it probably tends to have a less less of an influence on your happiness. Interesting. Now, but but you know if you go on vacation um, to California, that might make you feel happy, right? Um, gotcha. So I think yeah, it really yeah. depends on how you're looking at it. Very cool. Wow, you Thanks. all are really. You're hitting home on basically everything that's going on in my life. <laughs> you know, I was in California. I was in California with my girlfriend two months ago. Um, had a great time uh, overlooking a body of water, and I'll, as far as I'll go. But um, <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is, um, you know, that I started thinking about. Um, I, I, it's not really a quote, but a way a comedian. I think his name's Brian Callen. I believe this is who it would be attributed to, but basically whenever it came to the money side of things and being happy, he looks at it as if you go to a restaurant, you indulge, you have drinks, you have a really, really nice meal and you have enough money to not worry about what the bill looks like at the end. And that's really all the money you need to be happy. That's, that's how he, he looks at it to where you don't have to have just a crazy amount of money. But as long as you can have enough to have this nice meal and not worry about the bill at the end, that was his version of happiness. And I always kind of, I found that fascinating. And I thought that was, I was like, oh, that, that does kind of seem nice, you know, but uh, I digress. Uh, I'm back into story <laughs> mode again. So um, <laughs> moving on to something that Ryan mentioned uh, early on, whenever he was, he was uh, introducing you uh, and uh, talking about your research was um, one of your specific uh, research focuses is into health and happiness is on uh, parenthood. And you mentioned that much of the literature, I, I read this in your article, I think on psychology today, um, you said that much of the literature uh, has painted a dismal picture of parenting. Uh, however, you believe at least in some areas that parenthood is associated with greater happiness and well-being. How and why did you come to this conclusion? Yeah, absolutely. So this is a bit of a story. So I started studying parenthood pretty early in my graduate school career before I even became a parent myself. And at the time, I saw lots of headlines and some research articles suggesting that all parents were miserable. Um, and, you know, re these news headlines tend to um, be pretty extreme. Um, I remember one even saying that having children was as bad for happiness levels as becoming unemployed or the death of a spouse. Um, and um, I was pretty puzzled by those findings in the headlines because anecdotally people describe their children as the light of their lives or the best thing they ever did or as, you know, um, a true joy, you know, these really kind of glowing terms. And so there seemed to be a disconnect between what was being reported and what I was observing. And essentially, I wanted to know who was lying, right? Are parents lying to me when they tell me that they're happy that they had children? Um, or is there something that's getting misconstrued um, in the research or in the headlines? And um, a lot of the studies were, a lot of them were from the field of sociology and they were reporting that parents were less happy than people without children. And so I wanted to understand why that was the case. What is it about being a parent that is making people unhappy? What were the psychological processes involved and whether this was true for all parents? So um, to address those questions, my collaborators and I started with um, really just an initial replication of those negative effects of parenthood on well-being. And we conducted three studies. Um, for the first study, we went to the World Value Survey with, and focused on um, participants in the United States. Um, so this was a nationally representative sample, um, including um, parents and non-parents, a wide range of demographic factors, and um, questions about life satisfaction and meaning in life. And in that study, we found that um, parents reported slightly higher happiness levels than people without children, as well as higher levels of meaning in life. 
And the second study, so then we thought, okay, um, you know, parents seem to be at least a little bit as happy as people without children and maybe even a little bit happier. Um, but this, you know, these broad happiness reports of, you know, how happy with your life overall could be biased. Um, if people are thinking about, you know, the cultural expectations of parenthood as, you know, supposed to make you happy or things like that. Um, and so, and it could also differ from how people feel in their day-to-day life. So for our second study, we used an experience sampling methodology um, including both parents and non-parents. We contacted them several times a day um, for about a week and asked them um, what they were doing, who they were spending time with, and how they were feeling. So we have these kind of in-the-moment reports of um, their positive emotions um, and also some questions about their meaningful moments in their day-to-day life. And so we were able to compare, again, parents and non-parents on these um, day-to-day emotions and meaning um, throughout the week. And we found, again, that parents reported more positive emotions throughout the week, as well as more meaningful moments compared to people without children. And, but in that study, we, again, like we, we didn't look at parents' experiences specifically when they were spending time with their children. So it could be that, you know, all those moments that we contacted them were specifically the moments when they're not hanging out with their kids. Um, And that's when they felt happiest. And that seems like it would be a problem if um, we're trying to say something about differences between parents and non-parents. So for the final um, study, we used the day reconstruction method um, and recruited only a sample of parents. And so for the day reconstruction method, this asks people to recount an entire day from start to finish, episode by episode. So you starting with the moment you woke up, um, and you kind of chunk your day into episodes. So one episode might be um, getting ready for work. Um, the second episode might be taking kids to school. Um, after school, it might be, you know, hang, hanging out with your kids, making dinner, reading stories, you know, all sorts of things. So we have these, we can like break apart a person's day from start to finish. Then we can look at those and we also ask them for each episode um, how they felt um, for each specific episode. So we have all these different activities that people are doing throughout their actual lived experience day um, and how they felt for all these different aspects of their day. Then we can dig in a little bit deeper and split apart um, people's days based on the times when they are spending with their kids compared to all the other stuff they do in their day. And when we do that, we find that parents report greater positive emotions and greater sense of meaning, specifically when they are spending time with their kids relative to their other daily activities. And that's a finding that I have now replicated a few times. So it seems to be um, pretty consistent. Parents tend in general, on average, not all the time, but on average, parents tend to feel um, pretty happy um, and especially a sense of meaning when they're spending time with their kids. So all of that is pretty counter to the narrative that uh, that, that people with kids are less happy. How, I mean, how exactly can we explain the discrepancy? Well, and, and let me add one other point to that as I ask that question, Katie, which is that I guess I feel like child care uh, isn't, particularly uh, um, satisfying to do, right? Like changing diapers, um, uh, uh, putting bandages on, you know, uh, kids that are hurt, um, Mm -hmm. you know, making uh, drinks, you know, I want more juice. Yeah. I don't find that to be particularly rewarding parts of my day. Um, so, so uh, how do you, how do you explain the discrepancy between those studies and that sort of intuitive feel that the child care part isn't very much fun, but at the same time, there are certain rewarding aspects of being with, with your children. Right. So there's kind of two questions here. So first is looking at the discrepancy with other studies. So, um, some of those other studies are, you know, basically just looking at parents versus non-parents and how happy they are. And they tend to include a whole bunch of covariates, um, like a really long list, um, age, marital status, um, ethnicity, um, employment status, um, you know, and the list goes on. 
And it seems to be that once you include all these covariates that I think are actually part of being a parent, you know, being, you know, in your 30s, being in a relationship, all these things that kind of go along with being a parent. Once you take all those out, then, yeah, being a parent is um, not so good. Um, but when you, um, when you just look at this like simplest association, um, comparing parents and non-parents, um, we see, you know, pretty small, um, positive association with parenthood and well-being. And so the way I think about it is, you know, that um, if you just kind of randomly plucked two people off the street, one is a parent and one is a non-parent, chances are they're going to have pretty similar um, happiness levels. Um, and the parent might be like a touch happier. Um, and the way I have come to think of it is more about um, not so that we shouldn't so much be emphasizing, you know, who's happier, parents or non-parents, but instead thinking about the variety of people's experiences. Um, and, you know, when I present on this, I have um, a figure that I show the overlapping distributions of happiness levels for parents and non-parents. For the most part, they are um, highly overlapping. And so the differences are actually quite small. Um, and um, so that's how I have reconciled that. Um, those studies also have not typically looked at how parents feel when they're spending time with their children, which is what we did in that third study that we were just talking about. Um, and so it does seem to be the case that parents feel pretty happy when they're spending time with their children. So Ryan, you also asked about this discrepancy between child care and you know, other types of activities. There has been some additional research that has tried to kind of piece this apart in terms of, you know, what are the specific types of activities that are pe that people are doing? Um, and in some additional research, we used a similar experience sampling methodology um, and asked people um, whether they were engaging in child care at a particular moment. Um, we also asked if they were talking or interacting with anyone. Um, at a particular moment. Um, and then there was a list of, you know, different people they could choose, including what we were interested in was their children. So mm -hmm. we have a sense of, you know, are you engaged in child care? Um, are you talking or interacting with your kids? And um, what we tend to see is that um, first there's a gender difference. Um, moms are more likely to be engaging in child care more often. Um, than dads are. And when moms are engaged in childcare, um, it's associated with lower happiness than when they're doing other stuff. Um, but when we look at, you know, the talking or interacting, both moms and dads um, report more happiness when they're engaged in more kind of interaction with their children. Interestingly, dads are also experiencing more um, happiness when they're engaged in childcare. Um, and so there is, there are these interesting discrepancies. But as you point out, Ryan, there is a difference between um, changing diapers, making dinner, chauffeuring, uh -huh. like all these things um, are probably not the parts of um, parenting that are the most enjoyable. And but you know, playing, reading stories, um, those other more interactive um, aspects of parenting um, tend to be associated with greater happiness. Well, this is really fascinating. Uh, I, I really appreciate you sharing this with us, Katie, because I mean, I feel like this is, uh, it takes what seems to be a pretty simple question and, and unpacks it and says, well, there's really a lot of complexity here to what we mean when we're talking about being a parent. What constitutes parenting? What are the parts of parenting that make you happy? What are the parts that don't make you happy? Um, uh, yeah, I did. I think overall, just it's really fascinating. Now, uh, Katie, correct me if I'm wrong, but don't, do you also have some research suggesting that that like whether you want to be a parent or not is also associated with happiness? Oh yeah. So I have not uh, myself conducted some research on that, but there is uh -huh. evidence suggesting that it's important, right? So uh, you know, you could also think about comparing. Um, people who want to have children um, and do um, with people who don't want to have children and don't and people who want to have children and don't have children. Right. Uh -huh. um, so that might be people who are struggling with infertility or haven't found the right relationship yet, or, you know, whatever their life circumstances um, that have prevented them from having children. 
And when you break it apart that way, um, you see, not surprisingly, when you compare people who have children, want to have children and do have them with people who um, want to have children and don't have children, um, you see a, a bigger difference in happiness levels. Um, right. And so I think some of it is related to you know the goals that a person has and what they want out of life. And this is part of the reason why I've moved away a little bit from, you know, comparing parents and non-parents directly, um, because I think that those findings get, get taken out of context and start to get used as like, well, um, having kids makes you happy. So everybody should have them. Um, but that might or may not, might not be consistent with what people actually want, um, out of their lives. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I actually, it makes me wonder about that last group, which is the, the people who don't want to have kids, but have them, uh, <laughs> group as well. I mean, it's probably a harder group to find in some respects, but, but I do wonder about how, how that group might fall on this, on the same set of, uh, comparisons. Yeah. I think there have been some, like most studies suggest that I saw some headlines, uh, last year, showing that there was like a small percentage. It was like 5% of people who regretted having children. Um, something to that effect. Um, I know. And I imagine, I wonder too, like what do people's lives look like that they um, are admitting that, right? Because it's highly socially undesirable to say that right. you don't want your children. Um, and so I just wonder like, studying that topic must be so challenging. You also have to wonder if that's actually an accurate number, like who's willing to admit that, um, that they don't, that they have children and then they, right, they, right. you know, so um, we touched on this a little bit, uh, but before we, before we get to the, the, my final question, I, I one more just to get, dig in a little bit deeper, because you point out, you know, that parenthood can also in some ways be associated with lower well-being. And I, I'm, I'm actually curious, like, what are the, some of the reasons why that might be the case? Yeah, absolutely. So um, several years ago, I did this comprehensive review of the literature on parenthood and well-being. And I was really trying to understand, like, what are the good things about parenthood? Well, I guess you could say, like, what are the bright sides um, and what are the dark sides? And um, there seemed to be four heavy hitters among um, parents that could predict declines in happiness. The first is that having kids can um, be stressful and increase negative emotions, um, you know, from, you know, engaging in those everyday um, childcare responsibilities that might just not be so fun um, to worrying about your kids, um, you know, finding childcare, you know, all these different things that can increase stress and negative emotions. So that could predict declines in happiness. The second is financial strain. So um, having kids, especially in the United States, is undoubtedly expensive. Um, one recent estimate suggested that um, raising kids to age 18, one child to age 18, um, costs $267,000. Um, and that's not including the cost of college. Um, and so parents are under, um, financial strain and that could, um, lower well-being. Um, the third is sleep disturbance and fatigue, right? Especially in those early years of parenthood. Um, but, um, studies suggest that parents experience shortened sleep duration, um, as long as they have a child in the house. Um, and the fatigue from being on all the time and responsible for another human, um, could, um, reduce happiness levels. And finally, I think a really important one is the effect that having children has on um, relationships with one's partner. So um, studies find a pretty robust decline in relationship satisfaction following um, the birth of a child. And um, that decline is even greater for mothers. And so ha having a child does create strain um, between partners that could also um, result in declines in happiness. I would also like to point out that I think a lot of these have probably also been exacerbated by the pandemic, at least for some people. Um, and so um, it would be interesting to know, like to the extent that, you know, 
how has the um, COVID pandemic continued to um, contribute to some of these declines in happiness. Although I should point out that a recent study did find that parents living with children reported relatively higher well-being during the early stages Hmm. of the pandemic compared to people who were living alone. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess uh, some uh, free entertainment or, uh, you know, just some social interaction, uh, I think, uh, you know, in, you know, face-to-face interaction probably mm-hmm. just has some benefits, even if it's, uh, you know, even if it's not with an adult, even if it's with a child. So that's, that's kind of, that's pretty interesting too. Now, but Katie, you've also done some research on, or at least you've written about some uh, well-being during the pandemic. Um, what kinds of things have you found out there? Yeah, so um, I was working on a project looking at how our um, expectations and motivations um, during the pandemic for social distancing behaviors and things like that are associated Mm -hmm. with um, well-being and other outcomes. And so here we were interested in looking at um, pro-social versus self-focused motivation, as well as gratitude during those early stages of the pandemic. And so we asked um, participants some questions about um, these different um, aspects of well-being in April of 2020, um, including some questions like, um, I um, recognize that engaging in social distancing practices um, helps protect other people. Um, and I'm doing, the, I'm engaging in these behaviors to you know, benefit the community or um, to help prevent other people from com- getting sick with COVID-19. Um, versus, um, you know, I am engaging in social distancing practices or wearing a mask or, you know, these other activities um, that we have all been asked to do. Um, I'm doing that to protect my own health. Um, And so we have this pro-social focus on other people versus the self-focus on ourselves. And um, we also measure just general gratitude as like a broad perspective of, you know, focus on other people, right? So um, the extent to which we feel grateful for the things that other people have done for us. And um, what we found is that um, those pro-social motivations were associated with greater adherence to social distancing practices and wearing masks mm-hmm. and things like that. So more of the health behavior outcomes, um, whereas gratitude was associated with more of the emotional and happiness outcomes, um, but not vice versa, right? So we had this interesting distinction between pro-social motivation and gratitude um, and self-focused motivation was kind of a wash. It was not really associated with anything. Gotcha. That's really interesting. Yeah. And I mean, I guess I think about, you know, you know, the, there's a whole bunch of things going on here. We think about the great resignation. We think about the pandemic. We think about, you know, well-being. We think about isolated, you know, uh, mm-hmm. workers. I mean, uh, you know, some workers in isolation, but some workers just under stress because, uh, you know, exposure uh, to, to COVID. Um, I guess just thinking about all of that, you know, and how that affects our sort of well-being, right? And, and just how what the, all of these things are affecting our well-being, and how that's affecting you know what we're seeing now in the workplace. With yeah. again, I think partly with the Great Resignation. I just wonder about sort of how all of these factors are related together. And I guess it's really no probably simple way to study that, but it just seems like um, it, the the sort of things we know about social connection and being isolated, um, and, and how you know, being at work and being isolated uh, might not be the most fun and how that might really lead to people feeling motivated to um, to, to seek new employment uh, as it, like we're seeing with the, with the great resignation movement. What do you think? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think social connection is one of the big ones. Um, it's, one of the most important factors for happiness levels is, you know, feeling close and connected to other people. So when I think about the effects of the pandemic more broadly and, you know, early on, I, I honestly, I was really concerned about these um, changes in social connection that could be occurring um, in response to the pandemic. I think that, um, the evidence here, you know, there started to be studies published looking at how the pandemic has affected um, social connection and well-being and things like that. And um, 
I think the evidence has been a bit mixed. There have been some studies suggesting that, you know, yes, people are adapting um, and mm. the declines in social connection are you know, not as big as we might have expected, nor have been the declines um, in mental health as big as we might have expected. Um, on the other hand, there are studies like the one I was just referring to showing that um, people who were living alone, especially, so they are probably the most socially isolated, um, reported um, greater uh, declines in happiness and greater declines in mental health in the you know those early stages of um, the pandemic. Um, then you know layering onto that the um, changes that we're seeing in the workplace with, you know, like you mentioned, the great resignation. Um, I think that, you know, again, I think social connection, and you said this really well, is like if you're feeling isolated at home and you're feeling isolated at work, like that's going to be a pretty big motivator for people to um, seek something different. And there's, you know, all you can start layering on problems with, you know, social justice issues and inequality and um, racism and discrimination, like all of these big mm -hmm. things have been happening um, in the last two years. And it's really hard to study. And I think that people are going to be studying this for a really long time. Well, Katie, one last question before we get out of here. Um, we like to ask people when we bring them on to, give a little bit of advice, you know, pertaining to the topic that we're talking about with our guests. And so let's pretend there are people out there who struggle with being happy. What advice would you give them to improve their situation? Yeah, absolutely. So first, I hope that knowing it's possible to become happier is helpful. Um, I would also suggest investing time and energy into um, things that contribute to greater happiness could be fruitful. Um, so for example, I've mentioned a few times today that um, close relationships are a really important predictor of happiness levels. So that could be uh, an important place to start. Um, some people might be interested in more structured activities. And here there's lots of experimental evidence showing that specific positive activities like writing gratitude letters or being kind to others, practicing optimism, um, affirming one's core values, all of these um, activities can lead to increases in happiness over time. Um, there are some really helpful resources, including some prompts for these activities available. Um, uh, online, the Greater Good Science Center out of UC Berkeley publishes a lot of information on their website that's freely accessible. So um, that's definitely a great resource to check out. Also thinking about how to structure your day to prioritize positive experiences can also be really helpful rather than um, you know chasing big dreams, right? So trying to focus on the day-to-day -day, I think would, could be more fruitful as well. Finally, I would encourage people to try not to become obsessive about how happy they are. Um, there's some research that suggests that when people intensely value happiness, then they can be disappointed or let down by things that they think will make them happier. So the more we can focus on enjoying our day-to-day -day lives, investing in our relationships, being kind to others, uh, doing all these things for their own sake, not necessarily to check a box so that we can become happier, then we will actually become happier. Well, I think that's really great advice. Uh, I just want to say thanks so much, Katie, for coming on the podcast today. It was awesome to have you here. We learned a ton about happiness, uh, health, well-being. Um, and I think a lot of this can be applied to, uh, to, to our audience members in their own personal lives, but also you know, to the lives of the people that they might work with. Um, it, it, whether it's a work colleague, whether it's in a coaching scenario. And I think this is just such good advice and, and really helpful. So, so again, I really appreciate you coming on here, Katie. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, Katie, I echo Ryan's sentiments. Um, definitely great having you on. This is a, a topic like Ryan had mentioned that we, we wanted to cover for quite some time. And uh, he, he said that, oh, we, we've got to talk to Katie. So, um yeah, thank you so much for coming on. And I think our audience is really going to enjoy this. Thank you. And that does it for the Science of Personality podcast, episode 51. Be sure to join us in two weeks for another fun and informative episode. Cheers, everybody. This has been the Science of Personality podcast brought to you by Hogan Assessments. 
You can access all podcast episodes on our website, scienceofpersonality.com, or on the streaming service of your choice. See you next time.